The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect official policies or position of the Church of England Pensions Board, any other organisation, employer or their employees. And now, on with the show. I'm David Hickey and welcome to Talking Responsibly. So thanks for tuning in again. This is episode two of the Talking Responsibly podcast uh, featuring myself, David Hickey, and my co-host, Adam Matthews. Adam, how are you, sir? Hi, David. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, We've got Adam here, and we've got this week's special guest as well. Now, this week's special guest is uh, Deborah Gilshan. Now, Deborah was at uh, Railpen for uh, almost 10 years and was uh, eventually the head of sustainable ownership uh, at uh, Railpen. Uh, she also founded around 10 years ago the 100% Club, which is a uh, networking organization for women in finance and related fields. And she currently um, is employed uh, providing advisory services um, in the field of ESG. She's a very, very vocal um, diversity uh, advocate, uh, and we're very pleased to welcome her onto the podcast. Welcome, Deborah. Hello. Thank How? you for having me. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Very well, David. I hear you're fresh, fresh from a um, Sky News interview this week. Yes, well, it's a very big week for diversity here in the UK. Um, so yes, I was invited on to Sky News uh, last night to provide my views on the launch of the final report of the Hampton Alexander Review onto women in board, on boards and in senior leadership teams. Happy days. That's absolutely uh, fantastic. Well, we'll move on to talking about that uh, in just a moment. Um, but we are going to introduce a new feature to the podcast. And it's called the acronym klaxon and it sounds something like this now the acronym klaxon is a feature that's been requested by listeners um because um apparently adam and i used a lot of acronyms uh in the last episode and there are non-specialists that listen who have no idea what things like sasb that is the sustainable accounting standards board uh, means um, so we're going to use that uh, throughout. So if you h- h- do a, uh, an acronym um, and it's not been recognised so far, you get hit with a klaxon. And David, I think you've used the term ESG. ESG, yes. yes. Uh, ESG is, yes, environmental, social and governance things. Um, I, I actually find it a ridiculous acronym because um, it narrows what responsible investing is to three uh, particular terms and then you, you have to put what you're doing into one of those three boxes and uh, I actually hate it as a term. But that's what we've inherited as uh, an industry and uh, I'm going to make it my life's work to get rid of ESG as a concept um, because uh, it's just three parts three separate parts of investment risk so um yeah with that uh, in mind one, well one of the one of the uh s things i guess 
uh, although it does run into the E and the G, um, is uh, diversity. So, Deborah, please tell us what is on your mind this week. Uh, so, as I said, David, uh, this is a big uh, week for certainly gender diversity here in the UK, but actually it's a big year for uh, diversity in companies across all um, considerations, really, because 2021 is the, the last year for FTSE 100 companies to meet the Parker review targets on uh, ethnicity um, and race on boards as well. So um, I'm really excited to be talking to you both today uh, because there's been lots of progress made um, in terms of female representation, uh, certainly on boards um, in the largest 350 companies listed on our stock market over the last five years, according to the Hampton Alexander Review, we've had a 50% increase uh, in the number of female directors um, in, on uh, FTSE 350 companies. Um, and we've, we've hit the target of 33%. So a third of those uh, boards um, now are now made up of um, women. Um, so some really great progress being made, but also uh, some challenges along the way as well, because we still don't have enough female representation um, at in senior leaders' roles, such as the CEO and the CFO. So lots more to do. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I wanted to uh, ask you about there, Deborah. I mean, we 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 have clearly seen a lot of these people um, people brought onto boards, but when I have company meetings, I'm not necessarily seeing that reflected as much in the senior leadership teams that I'm meeting. What do you know the off the top of your head, what kind of numbers we're seeing in kind of the 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 C level roles? And I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, point out the non HR C level roles uh in the industry. Yeah, so in the FTSE three fifty we have seventeen female chief executives. Um, that's 17, that's only 17. I mean, we just we should just think how such a small number that is. And again, according to Hampton Alexander um, review from yesterday, uh, still two thirds or 64% of leadership roles are going still to, to men. And I just don't think this is credible anymore. And I think um, laggard companies that are having, you know, still all-male executive committees. So there's 28 companies in the FTSE 350 that have all-male executive committees. There's 16 boards that are so-called one and done. They've appointed one female and, uh, you know, they think the job is done. And that, to me, is all evidence of groupthink uh, risk for investors. Um, and, you know, those are the types of target companies that investors should be uh, focusing on um, as well. So what, what kind of excuses are you hearing from management? Because the classic one that I've heard in the past is that, oh, well, we can't find any women. As though, you know, women don't make up 50% of the population and, um, you know, about the same of the workforce. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really important point. And actually, a couple of years ago, Hampton Alexander actually put out some of the excuses that they'd heard from serving board chairs. Um, and it was this idea of, you know, I've got one woman on my board at someone else's turn uh, that women, you know, couldn't deal with the com complicated nature of discussions that go on in the boardroom. I mean, they're as ridiculous as that, really. Um, and I, I think that uh, those types of um, those types of ideas about what women can and can't do and what 
differences in leadership traits that women bring to organisations, um, they, ju they just need to be challenged. Um, and I think we're living in, an, in a world as we continue to go through the pandemic and after the, the tragic events of last year and the focus on racial injustice and inequalities more generally, um, the, these, these excuses just, you know, they weren't acceptable before, but they're even more less acceptable now. Um, and I'm hoping that this annual meeting season um, in the UK and elsewhere is a real demonstration from investors of their unwillingness to accept uh, some of these um, examples, uh, you know, excuses that are being given as to, to why, um, you know, you haven't got enough women on your board. There's still 100 companies in the FTSE 350 that haven't met the 50% target. And we've been talking about gender diversity for 10 years. So there are really no excuses now. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, look, you've you've been absolutely at the forefront of pioneering this the shift, and and whilst I know that there's still a significant way to go, it's still a, a significant milestone as well this week in terms of that change that has occurred. Um, and I, I remember going to an AGM when I first started in 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 this sort of industry and seeing you challenging the board that they had more more directors called John than they had um, females on the board and, and I and that's also when I started thinking actually that's the kind of way to start engaging properly and robustly on behalf of your beneficiaries so I learned a lot from you but it was how, how to what extent do you feel that it's investors that have driven this change or do you think it's been the sort of pressure from things like the Hampton Alexander review and that transparency or, or these things have moved in tandem I know there's multiple things that contribute but what, what would yeah. you say is the role that's been played so, I mean, I, I think the role of investors here is absolutely critical and is transformational, not just on diversity, but actually on so many of the, the wider uh, environmental, social and governance issues. So I'll avoid using the word, the acronym, because I don't want the horn coming at me. It's, it's, it's uh, fine. It's already been explained. So you can you can use that one at will. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think investor power is transformational here, but actually the UK is a really clever and interesting example of a multi-stakeholder approach. So I got involved in the 30% Club in 2011 when it set up its investor group, and I worked for Railpen at the time, and Railpen was one of the inaugural members of the 30% Club's investor group. And it's been such a powerful lever of change, the role of investors, but also the role of advocacy groups like the 30% Club, uh, policy makers, the UK Corporate Governance Code has requirements on diversity, the UK Stewardship Code now requires, um, you know, expectations of engagement by shareholders on diversity, but also government reviews like the Davies Review before we then got the Hampson Alexander Review, the Parker Review on ethnicity um, on boards as well. So it's it's been a really important uh, framework, uh, but it's it required lots of parties to work together and work simultaneously, as well as obviously chairs and CEOs um, of companies and embracing change. Yeah, no, and, and, and I mean, I mean, I've, I mean, our funds integrated into the way that we vote. We vote against the chairs and the chairs of, um, of, of committees if if they have not met certain targets. This year, we've increased it to forty percent. Um, and, and I just sort of, there's been a really powerful movement there that you've sort of been spearheading with others in, in this space. Um, I suppose one of the, I, I, I just 
one of the other criteria that I still think that we we so fail on, and this is no reason to, in any way to sort of question this movie, is just the diversity of backgrounds and and how are people coming now that meet in different diversity criteria, but actually is the diversity of the backgrounds also something that we're seeing a shift in too? I'm I'm, I'm going to add to that as well, Adam, uh, because I I agree that the you know, diversity of background is diversity of thought, you know, that it, it brings in lived experience difference, you know, gender generates that, ethnicity generates that, class generates that. Um, but I'm wondering as well, we've, you, you, we've spoken about, you know, investors playing a role. Don't investors have a credibility problem with things like diver- diversity? Because, you know, if you look at uh, who's running our money, it is guys like me, I am, a white male middle-aged guy who is a fund manager much like every other fund manager out there they all look like me they all have a reasonably similar background to me um you know university educated uh, although you know my my class background is probably different from many in the city um but in terms of lived experience you know we we have a group of you know, white middle-class males um, running around 90% of all assets under management. And it's that group that is effectively saying to everyone, oh, you need to have X, Y, Z levels of diversity. And we don't push enough on our own industry. Um, But you are seeing, I mean, I think in responsible investment, you're seeing a lot more women come into that industry and I think pioneering a lot of the change in it. Um, But... Yeah, I, I think I think that's true, but at the same time, um, I don't think people that are in the field of responsible investment are either taken as seriously or remunerated in the same way as those that are no, fund managers. I mean, I think it's a really important point, and I think these things aren't mutually exclusive. And actually, what I believe is diversity and inclusion within financial services, as well as the role of investment stewardship, is so fundamental to how we rebuild trust in financial services and how we demonstrate the social utility of financial services, which is a service industry. So I think there's lots of really kind of bigger issues here that we need to think about because the role of um, asset managers and asset owners and stewardship is so fundamental to how capitalism works. Um, I did some uh, work with CityWire last year who looked at, so they look at the, gender um, makeup of who run our, who runs our money so portfolio managers in their database and it's gone from something like 10.3 percent five years ago in 2015 to 11 percent in 2020 like a glacial pace of change in terms of gender parity of people who are actually running money and they estimated that it'll take us 200 years to get gender parity um, or even just you know, amongst portfolio managers. And so if we want women to be investing in the stock market, you know, the gender pensions gap in this country is 40%, never mind the gender pay gap. We need the financial services industry to reflect the people that it ultimately serves. And this is just on gender alone. Like we're not even beginning to talk about ethnicity, race, disability, sexuality. You know, we need to all reflect the societies in which we operate in. And I really believe there's a huge opportunity here for finance to be part of the solution. Um, And there's lots of great work going on through the Diversity Project, 100 Black Interns, even my own network, the 100% Club, is, is, is part of hopefully the solution as well. But it requires a more honest conversation about the point at where we're at and yeah. where we kind of need to get to. 
Absolutely. And uh, I think it's it's part of our role as uh, as asset owners to really help drive that. And we, we do have a project that we're working on uh, collectively at the moment um, that we're hoping to uh, to launch at some point in uh, in the coming couple of months, yeah. I think, um, to try and drive that change. Because essentially, if while ever the asset owners put up with this, the asset managers will not change. So it's up to the asset owners to say, we need to see that difference. And if we don't see that difference, then you're not getting our money to run. And as soon as you start hitting people in the uh, in the revenue line, then changes will be made because you know these companies are pragmatic, if nothing else. Um, and it's a really good work there. I mean, I think the is Brunel that sort of it's very explicit criteria in terms of the diversity of the managers that yeah. they employ, and I, I think the initiative you're referring to is is desperately needed. So yeah, um, I mean, I, I think asset owners are absolutely key here um, as well in terms of how they push diversity through the investment chain both in terms of their expectation of their external asset managers but also their investee companies uh, you know trustee boards um, you know are challenged on diversity as well but again we can't we can't stop being good stewards and expecting you know asset owners to hold their asset managers to account on both diversity within asset managers but also how they are being good stewards on diversity you know because trustee boards also need to um, address their own diversity deficits and there's lots of great work going on you know to get younger people onto trustee boards so there's you know the age diversity um, so yeah and, and I spent a lot of last year writing and researching a report with the Institute of Business Ethics looking at kind of some of the ethical dimensions to diversity like why do we have to prove the business case why do we have to prove that adding women or ethnic minorities to boards leads to outperformance we don't have you know evidence that homogeneity on boards leads to outperformance so I think we're living in a really interesting time to have the, the conversations that are really necessary to challenge the status quo so that we will get change that is sustainable over the longer term as well. I, I had a conversation uh, over a few beers with a friend of mine who is a, a private equity guy. Um, and I was saying that, you know, we needed more women on boards. And I, I'm actually a fan of using a quota system and saying you need this many women. And he came back with me the argument. He says, yeah, but then you end up hiring women that are, you know, unsuited, you know, just to give them a, a, a role at the table and, and tick a box. And I countered him with saying, like, how many boards have you been on and been experienced with? And he said, oh, yeah, dozens and dozens of boards. I'm like, right, how many middle-class white men have you known on those boards that were entirely unsuited uh, and shouldn't have been on those boards? In the same way you said that these people could just be box stickers. How many of those guys? And he took a sip of his drink and he went, yeah, absolutely loads. You're dead right. So, you know, what we, we're not trying to knock out here, you know, the stellar guys. This is a fight for, you know, replacing the massive amount of mediocre guys that are on boards, that are in senior management positions with great women. You know, the, 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 we want people, we want great people running our companies and we want great people as stewards of our capital. Um, and it shouldn't matter the gender. But there's, you know, there's just too much, too, too much of the mediocre white man in the industry. I'm allowed to say that because... I'm a white guy and I'm <laughs> well, mediocre at many things. Well, it's, I mean, it, it, it's actually very important that we actually talk about this because we are also at a point where the evolution of boards is occurring. You know, we need more climate change expertise on boards. We need, you know, health professionals on boards. So the actual, you know, the, the makeup, the skill set 
you know, individually and collectively of a board, I think is absolutely under the microscope as well. And again, the role of investors is key here in terms of how they vote for or against directors at annual, annual meetings. But I think the evolution of, of, of the board you know, and for it to be fit for purpose for the future um, is, is so key to this. And I think diversity is part of that as well, because, you know, the governance geek within me was really interested in understanding how we improve board governance and effectiveness by more diversity, uh, you know, by different thinking to achieve cognitive diversity on boards and, you know, back, different backgrounds and experiences was what, what Adam referenced, like social mobility and how we get people from different backgrounds and lived experiences onto boards, I think is so critical to this and what we explore through the work that I did with the Institute of Business Ethics. Remember, if you're just going to highlight... Oh, Adam, two, Adam, oh, that the that's the gong. That's the gong, I'm sorry. Uh, J- Jared, our gong player, was a bit a bit late. I had to uh, <laughs> sh- shuffle him into life a bit there, but unfortunately the gong is gone. So, Deborah, you got the, the, the last say the there. last word. Yeah, we, we will take this <laughs> offline and continue it. Um, but for now, we are going to go over to uh, Rory Sullivan and his book of the week for this week. Welcome to Book of the Week with Rory Sullivan. This week's book review was triggered by a TV interview between Fergal Keane, the distinguished BBC war correspondent, and Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach or in English, the leader um, of the Republic of Ireland that I I saw just by accident on television um, a few weeks ago. Part of the interview involved Fergal Keane being given a tour of Micheál Martin's office and on his walls were two of those great icons of Irish history, Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera. Uh, both of whom fought together in the 1916 Easter Uprising and then ended up on opposite sides in the Irish Civil War. Now, what does this have to do with a book review? Well, the Irish Civil War has been one of those kind of great untold stories in Irish history. Um, It was never explained when we did history in school. Um, Our parents never talked about it, but yet its ripples um, sort of have, have fed through Irish history and Irish politics over the last century, and we're still dealing with the consequences of it. What makes the why has it not been talked about? It's because it was probably the first time in contemporary history that we couldn't blame England for our own falls or for our own problems. It the civil war saw family turned against family, it saw um, parish turned against parish, and it was I say it was it was a it was an internal civil war, not one where we had a, a recognized enemy or I guess being typically Irish, somebody else who, who we could blame for our own problems. And it's never really been explained. It's been described in the history books and in the literature as, you know, terms of politics, in terms of sides of a debate, Um, but it's never been properly explained. Um, So this week's book is a book called Wounds by Fergal Keane, the aforementioned Fergal Keane, um, and who is, I think, recognised as one of the great war journalists, if if one can apply the word great to, to that profession. He describes the Irish Civil War, um, again, not in terms of politics, but in terms of a community, in terms of family in a a town in County Kerry called Listowel, where his family is from. He explains how brave men become cowards. 
and how cowards become heroes. He explained how he explains how and why families turn against each other. Um, he also applies our understanding of conflict um, and what we understand about the the psychology and the nature of conflict to to uh, uh, the conflict which happened in Ireland a hundred years late, but but perhaps um, better late than never. He, and he also does it with sort of a generosity and, and an understanding that is unusual in writing about Irish history. I mean, very often Irish history is a, is a polarised discipline where, where one is always looking for someone else to blame. Um, I would have to say that this was this has been one of the most significant books I've read about Irish history. It's, for the first time, I actually understood um, a part of Irish history that I'd never quite managed to come to terms with. Why, why did this happen in, you know, ostensibly a peace-loving, friendly nation, um, a nation that's always had a had a friendly enemy <laughs> to to fight against? Um, and I, I think it, it stands as as possibly one of the most important books about modern Ireland that I've ever read. Now, as a postscript. So that's my review of Fergal Keane's book, Wounds. I would recommend it to anybody interested in, in modern Irish history or in Irish politics. Just as a postscript, he also wrote one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It was called Letter to Daniel. I believe it first started as a, as a BBC radio series, which was a book he wrote to his newborn son, um, reflecting on his life as a journalist, um, what he had seen of the experiences endured by children in war um, and possibly also reflecting on on his relationship with his father. Um, it's, it's a beautifully written book, I think, for every parent. It is something you should read. And it is the single most um, human and heartfelt account I've heard of the case for peace over war. So if you want to read Fergal Keane, my book of the week is Fergal Keane's Wounds, um, but I would also recommend if you haven't read Letter to Daniel as a as a uh, letter and and in fact even a poem from a father to a son. Okay, thanks for that, Rory. Uh, another fantastic uh, book review. Um, so hopefully you've been enjoying those so far. I think I've I've been worried that the uh, a lot of the feedback I've been getting about the show. Uh, from the episode one was Rory's book club was, was very very good I said, okay what about the rest where I was in it and was, no 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 just the, the book review including my wife who uh, who said yeah the, the book bit was really good I'm like, thanks Sandra yeah, it's a walking great. library isn't he he is he is he's, he's quite the um, quite the resource um, but yeah welcome to part two um, where I was wanting to discuss uh, a very specific thing um, so people might have seen a, a, a bit of a news article going around this week about a bank um, that is being sued, and it is being sued for making claims of impact that um, the, uh, the, the, the complainant, complainants uh, are saying can't be true. Um, and I find this really, really interesting because as an as a equity manager, uh, I come across this quite a lot um impact washing you know it's we we've we've heard of lots of washing terms so for those that aren't specialists you know green washing is where you say something is green and it really isn't and impact washing is where you say something is impactful uh, and it really isn't so what do i mean by impactful well impactful is when 
you put your capital to work in a certain way and you can say that that capital then had this specific outcome. And what you end up doing is uh, people, marketing teams will look at a portfolio and say, well, you know, this portfolio is full of all these companies that are doing great things. This companies are low carbon and these are, you know, help save water, you know, this, that and the other. Therefore, by having your money in this fund, you are helping lower carbon and you are helping save water, which is absolute nonsense. If you are buying a equity fund, you are buying secondary equity. So whether you hold it or you don't hold it, that company is still doing the same thing. It's like literally the opposite of the divestment argument where people say divesting. If I want to divest from Shell, I don't go to Shell and say, Shell, here are my shares. I want my money back. Go and sell an oil field so that you can then pay me my money back. That's not what happens. You give your money, you give your shares to someone else in the market and they give you money. The company isn't affected. So if I want to buy a, a so-called clean company that is doing great things, I don't give my money to them. I give it to a, a former shareholder who sells their shares to me. Now, so what's the right term then? So what's the right term? So I, I get I get the logic of what you just said, and yep. I've got a lot of sympathy for it. But you buy a company, let's just say a renewables company, you've got shares in, in a renewables company, um, you're aligning with that company and, yep. and what it does, which is a positive and a, a good thing for the environment, it's a business that's green, it's, it's all, all good and for the reasons we know. But I mean, what would you describe that as then? It's, the it's just term? it's it's just impact alignment. You know, it, it's like any it's like buying any other company. You're doing it because you think that there is a financial upside to holding that company. Um, so it's it's a risk thing. You know, if you think if a lot of these green companies are quite disruptive, they're disrupting you know existing business uh, models. Uh, and they're drawing revenues from them. Therefore, investing in those companies can be very, very profitable because, you know, the, uh, often these are growth companies, these are growth industries, so you can make a lot of money out of that. And that's fine. That is aligning with a disruptive and impactful company. But your money itself that you're investing isn't actually generating that impact. That impact's happening on its own. So where, how could you legitimately claim impact then under the hickey lexicon here? Well, there's two types of, uh, of investing. You've got primary investing and secondary investing. So secondary investing is where you buy shares in the market. You know, people will have heard of things like GameStop. You know, there's, that's yeah. been all over the news recently. And you're buying shares that already exist from shareholders that already have it. So there's no actual um, capital flowing to the company. Um, so likewise, you can trade bonds. Now, bonds are come in two types. Um, bonds have a fixed life, so they'll generally be 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but they have this fixed life, and they, uh, they're created, um, and then they, they, they're destroyed at the end, effectively. And to create a bond, you have a, what they call a primary issuance. So you go to the market and you say, I, I'm launching this bond, will you finance me? And you... you uh, get new capital into the company through the issuance of a bond. Um, so that is brand new capital. And what they do with that capital could then be deemed impactful. The likewise, you know, you can do that with new equity. Uh, you can you can say, we're going to sell X number of shares and raise £100 million for this company because we want to build a new wind farm. That is impactful 
because it's new. But just churning around old old um, capital is not impactful. So, you know, there's this difference between primary markets and secondary markets. Primary markets uh, have this thing called additionality, where you're putting in additional capital. And secondary markets, you are not doing that with your capital. However, um, if you're a shareholder in a secondary company, you can do your engagement stuff. And, you know, I think we've all done a bit of engagement in the past. So you're basically wanting to see a complete recategorization of how we determine impact? I think so. Well, I think this is what um, the EU taxonomy is going to be doing uh, eventually. It's going, to ta- it's going to explain what you can call green and what you can call impact. Yeah. Um, and I've not uh, studied the, uh, the, the lexicon of this, of this taxonomy, but uh, I expect that it will say that you can't say buying secondary shares is impactful. If it so does, blast your own gong at you for EU taxonomy is what? <laughs> okay, well that, that word, wasn't the that first wasn't, time a year ago. I was just that wasn't that over. wasn't not, what, it not wasn't this no, no. Okay, I'm gonna. Ah, okay, it, it, okay. It, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> we we it will use that. Yeah, I'll I mean, double on that. Um, I think it I think it goes to a wider point about how you measure impact, and, and there's a wider debate now about impact investing, and is it environmental, social and governance investing, um, you know, because that was before impact investing was, you know, really through private markets, whereas now it's, I think people are thinking about the impact of their investments, really, regardless of how they they invest. But I I think your point about, um, you know, primary, being a primary investor, as opposed to just, you know, selling shares in the secondary market is, is important and should be wider should there should be wider understanding of it because i think it goes to the wider point about kind of greenwashing and and some misunderstanding about what is actually being done with the capital that's being provided yeah and I, and i think i think you're right you know if people want to align their capital with their values and things like that if if they have a like a defined contribution pension and they want to say, right, I have got X amount of money in this and I want it to be invested in these sectors because those are what I believe in, be it for values reasons or be it because you think they're, you know, those sectors are going to grow really well, then, you know, that's, that's a good thing. But, you know, you just need to understand that there's a difference between that alignment and true impactfulness. Yeah. One of the terms that we've been using, and I'm not sure if it's the right one to use to from being totally honest, but we've been trying to do impact engagement where through your ownership of companies across sectors, you can drive genuine systemic change in an impactful way. And, and as a result of your shareholding, you, you have that ability to have a purchase in, in that sector, in that company, but you're trying to drive change in those that you own and those that you don't own. And I, I, I sort of feel that that is one way of sort of create an impact um and mitigate a negative impact um so yeah I, I i've got a lot of sympathy for the point you make i think one one of the interesting things is that we when we talk about engagement and things like that you know people want to um kind of skew their portfolios to the the good companies and i'm, I'm making uh um bunny commas ears. in the bunny ears in the in the air yeah yeah um 
People want to buy good things and they want to sell bad things. But actually, if you think about it from an engagement point of view, if you really want to make an impact, what you should be doing is buying bad things and engaging with them so that they become good things um, rather than just, you know, leaving them by the wayside. So actually actively engaging because from a financial returns point of view, um, the real impact from... um, uh, the ESG ratings. So these are the the ratings that companies put on on how uh, good companies are from an environmental, social, and governance point of view. It's the momentum of those that generates value. It's not the the distinct level. So if you take a company that has a low ESG score and will actively work to work with that company to improve that score and improve their practices, generally you will generate value in that terms. Um, yeah, so so I mean, the, uh, I think this exposes as well how much ESG. Oh, I think I'm going to get the part from. No, uh, no, we, we've, we've defined it. We've defined, defined it. Oh, so okay. Um, ESG scores are are limited in their their scope because um, it's actually the delta of change, right? It's the ability to change, even if you think scores are are worthwhile and considering, uh, because a company can be very poorly governed governed, but if you've got no ability to change the governance, if your shareholder rights are quite limited, then you know one could argue there's not much point trying to engage when you don't have kind of the tools available to you. And you know I think some of the the governance challenges in the tech sector are, are quite good examples of that. Uh, so I, I think again this kind of the momentum of, of change as well as where you start from and where you want to go to. But I also think there's limitations in terms of engagement. Because you can't engage with a tobacco company and try it, try and stop it being a tobacco company. I know there is a shift towards, um, you know, vaping and, and, and other products, but ultimately, you know, you, you can't engage with uh, companies and get them to fundamentally change what, what they are. So I think a debate about the benefits, but the utility of engagement, but where yeah. it also kind of the limits of it, I think, are yeah, also important in the market yeah. that, we, that, we're, that we're in. There are indeed limits. But I think one of the things that um, I point out in the, the, to the, that divestment lobby, as it were, is that if you had um, blanket um, divested all your oil companies in, in kind of 2010, 2012, you would have missed out on owning Orsted for example, which was uh, an integrated oil and gas company with renewables back then and has slowly hived off those uh, oil and gas assets. But I say hived off because what it's not, it's not capped its wells. It sold them to Ineos, which is a private company, which has none of that oversight by people like Adam Matthews, who, you know, works on behalf of Climate Action 100 to very, very actively engage with oil and gas companies. So it's almost like the engagement that we do have uh, available to you know, a lot of these bits of companies are actually dropping out of that. Um, Likewise with the Anglos and Rio's uh, divestments of thermal coal, you know, they they didn't stop the mines, they just sold them to someone else. And that's someone else. Yeah, I mean, we have today the um, Anglo um, results and the indications from Mark Kidfani that basically they're looking to offload some of their sort of coal assets. And I've been down the mine of one of those. And it's actually probably the best mine, one of the best mines in the world in terms of safety, in terms of diversity of workforce, in terms of 
um, just all the kind of issues that you would want to see done well in mining were exhibited in this mine. I had to wear a big yellow outfit, it looked like a giant minion, but um, it was just absolutely fascinating to see it and to go down and be with the drill team that was all female led and they all wanted Mark Coote to find his job. Um, and then they're, they're now potentially the kind of mine that will now pass to a company. Now, will that company um, run it as well as Anglo has? I think that's a real concern. Um, and, and I know Anglo is, is conscious of that. But there is an issue here about sort of if you divest, who you pass it on to. But I also think that the point around de the debt market and, and the leverage there of what you're enabling with debt, because that's that's the key. And actually, we need to bring these two things together and, and have a much more coordinated approach to, to this issue. But, but what's also interesting is, you know, so Alphabet put out a bond last year and there were seven themes a sustainability bond, I think it was about $10 million. And one of the themes was racial equity. Um, I've not seen that before because these bonds have tended to be around environmental themes. So it's really interesting to think about not just the, obviously the equity piece, but fixed income and bonds and, and how you can, you know, exercise values through, through those types of um, investments as well. But the other piece about engagement and, you know, John Kay talked about, voice over exit, the, the key report from 2012 talks about voice over exit, but he assumed that the voice would be used. Um, and I think this piece about more assertive stewardship, using all of the rights available to you as a shareholder, you know, we, we I think this year, you know, we need to see much more assertiveness from all types of investors um, and the use of voice um, over exit as well. I think these are really important debates for the wider industry as well. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, absolutely. And there's the gong. So uh, yeah, we, we no doubt will talk more about um, about the use of the bond market in particular. Um, Adam and I have got some meetings coming up with some big bond market players. So um, that should be quite interesting. Um, I think, you know, we we think as asset owners that vanilla bonds have had their day and that everything is going to end up getting tied to more than um, your classic financial um, uh, net debt to uh, EBITDA, which is... Oh. Uh, which is earnings <laughs> before interest tax, well. uh, <laughs> depreciation and amortization. Yes. And just to, just to circle back, because Adam got me on the EU taxonomy, that's the European Union taxonomy uh, for green investments. Um, I, we, we call it the EU taxonomy. It's, it's essentially uh, going to be a description of um, what, what is green and what isn't green. Uh, it's incredibly dense. I, I've tried reading some of it. I'm not clever enough. So when I need to know something, I just get on the blower to uh, Professor Andreas Hopner and get him to explain it to me because he's far, far cleverer than I am. So I'm going to bring the show this week to a close. Thank you very much to our special guest this week, uh, Deborah Gilshan. Deborah, where can our listeners find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter. I don't tweet. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I also have uh, my own website, which is www.the100percentclub.co.uk. The 100 um, is the number 100. And um, yeah, you can find out more about what I'm up to in my work uh, through the website and on LinkedIn. Fabulous. 
And on Sky News, yes. Oh. And on Sky News. <laughs> well, fabulous work. Uh, thank you again to Adam. Great to see you again this week. And thank you, David. Uh, we will uh, catch up again uh, in another couple of weeks uh, with episode three. We've got a, a, another fantastic guest lined up for that. I'm going to keep her name secret for now, but another, uh, another fantastic woman from our industry because she's going... Um, continuing on from earlier it's up to uh people like adam and i to try and promote the fantastic women in our industry as much as we possibly can and use our our positions uh, and our influence uh, to do that so uh, it's a p- real pleasure to be able to do that um so with that in mind thank you to all our listeners for listening and we will be back in two weeks goodbye goodbye